Hey, everybody, and welcome to the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Abby Jackson. Hello from Vancouver. Evan Stone. Hello from California. This is somewhere Zuber. in California. Sorry. Somewhere, somewhere in California. This is James <laughs> Zuber. I'm calling in from Minneapolis, which is not nearly as snowy as it was when our guest, Paul Hudson, visited last time. Can you uh, say hello, Paul? Hey, uh, I'm calling here from sunny Hawaii, I wish. Um, it, I'm, I'm calling from rainy Bath in the southwest of England, and uh, it's nice, but it's, it's cold and gray here. I rather wish I was next to Evan, actually. How about Evan? Yeah, anytime. I'm actually <laughs> in the, the you know near near Napa. If you're you're familiar with that, so yeah, it's it's nice. It's nice and warm today. A little too warm for my taste, but you know better better than the rainy, I guess. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So, Paul, you've been on the show before, and a lot of our guests know who you are. But for the people that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you've been doing? So, I'm a full-time author about Swift. I spend a lot of time effectively just monkeying around with Swift code, trying things out, seeing what works well, seeing what doesn't work well, trying other stuff out. And when I finally find something that's sort of exciting and uh, teachable and worthwhile, that sort of Venn diagram crossover that I put online to my site, Hacking with Swift. Uh, I do lots of talks around the world at conferences. I think I've done my last one last week. I'm now free for the rest of the year, which is lovely. Um, but I spend a lot of time traveling around to conferences and speaking there and attending talks. And I mostly write books when I have the time about Swift, of course, uh, and Mac OS or iOS or tvOS, watchOS, Vapor, you name it, I'll, I'll write code for it. That sounds great. Now, you say you do a lot of, get a lot of, you get busy when you have you get excited, and I suppose you didn't get very excited about Dub Dub this year, which is 2019. Yeah, it was obviously a super quiet year. I, I barely even thought about going. Um, but helpfully, I will happen to get a, a, a golden Willy Wonka ticket again. Uh, so I was there, uh, and uh, I actually, for the first time, managed to publish a book during Dub Dub DC. That's a new one for me. Uh, I normally work hard while I'm there because obviously the cost of flying out plus ticket price plus uh, hotel and you know food and stuff, et cetera, ends up being expensive. So I try to uh, make the most of it. But this time I managed to do a whole book while I was there on day two, Tuesday, oh, sorry, Wednesday morning at like 2 a.m., which is a record, I think. Next year, I've got to go even earlier, try a book on day one. <laughs> so I'm curious how that, how that happens. How do, you, how do you end up publishing an entire book? on the second day of a conference about that. So conference. much coffee, so much coffee. <laughs> I, read, I passed one of my friends, Paola Mata. Um, she was walking downstairs um, in the hotel and I had two coffees and she asked, who's the other coffee for? And it was for me. They were both for me. <laughs> I was just taking these two massive Starbucks upstairs, downstairs, and in the lift regularly to uh, keep my brain ticking over. It was uh, 
remarkable how much work you can squeeze out of one human brain in about 36 hours when you try hard enough. So did you attend any of the sessions? So I actually, I really, I think I made some lifelong enemies. <laughs> no, um, I, I certainly, I, I had some people querying me at the labs. I, I went to SwiftUI labs every time they were open. And uh, one of the Apple folks said, listen, that's going to be in a session tomorrow. Well, that was in today's session. Uh, and, you know, I totally skipped it. I totally skipped it because I mean, sessions are really good. I do enjoy them after the fact to watch them back, download them. You know, they're great on the plane home from DubDub, for example, which is like 13 hour trip for me or something. Um, but while you're there, they're actually quite low density in terms of information because there's the, the intro, there's the lining up, there is the outline of the history, the context, then some API discussion, then the same thing as a discussion, just live coded, and then the summary, and then you're sort of filing out again. So the actual sort of meat of a 40-minute talk ends up being about 10 to 12 minutes for me. So I skipped the talks or fast-forwarded through them for the important bits and went straight to the labs to ask questions. And I find that works better because, you know, Apple always say, these labs, bring us your code, let's talk about it. And, you know, the way DubDub works is most of the talks are about completely new things. It's like, yeah, bring us your Catalyst code. Well, I haven't got any Catalyst code. Bring us your dark mode code. Well, no one's got any dark mode code, didn't they? Just till yesterday. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's awfully hard to bring code to them if you just watch a session about that thing because it just happened. And they do these labs directly after the sessions. You've had no time to really think about it and, you know, mull over questions. So by having those 40 minute, you know, or an hour or two hours extra spare, I was able to go and write code, write as much as I could and say, well, why doesn't this work? Why does that work differently to that thing? Or how should this work? Or is that the best? And show them the code. Uh, and it just saved so much time. I, you know, I was meeting some of the folks there, and, and I have a wall of questions, like a massive, long text document. We've got, we've just got bing, bing, bing through the list, until they're all done, and I come back tomorrow with another 20 questions, and another 20 questions, and so forth. And it was efficient, but tiring for them too, I'm sure. That's a really interesting strategy of, uh, of approaching that, and I, I hadn't really thought of that, but that totally makes sense, especially because what you said there, uh, Paul, about the meat of those talks really being about 10 minutes, that's about right. Uh, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, so I gather, uh, you may have already said this, uh, this, uh, this was purely about SwiftUI that you were doing the book about it. I think I remember this happening, and I remember reading the Twitter feeds and going, wow, how was he doing this? Um, so, so, and so the whole process went well. You were able to complete it by the end of WWDC? Uh, I said I did it on Wednesday morning about 2 a.m. It went live. Um, so it was, yeah, it was day two for me, like the end of nice. Tuesday, basically. Um, nice. And yeah, it, it went well. But, and, 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 you know, I, I, I kind of cheated. You know, I, I, I stayed. If you've ever been to DubDub in San Jose, you'll know there's the main McHenry Center building. Then on one side is the Hilton, and the other side is the Marriott. And, you know, I paid through the nose bluntly to stay in the Marriott so that I could literally t type upstairs, walk downstairs with my laptop and say, hey, folks, is this code correct? And say, yeah, that's great. And it goes out. Because, you know, when any new API comes out, you're sitting there, you know, you've written some code, you think, well, is this right? Could it be better? Could I like refactor this? Is there another way? Am I just completely way off here? And be able to show my laptop and say, here's my code. Is that right? And have the folks who made it say, yeah, that's right. Or no, don't do that, do this, gave me this absolute certainty that I would not otherwise have had. Like this code is good to go. I'll happily tell the world to do this. It's, you know, it's from the, the horse's mouth, as it were. The folks who wrote SwiftUI have said, yes, see if approval, go with it. And that meant so much to me. It saved so much time of second guessing and worrying and doubting and rewriting. 
go out there. Is that right? Yes. Boom. Done. Live. And it, it just saves so much time. That is, that's pretty awesome. And I, I was, I, while you were speaking, it, it made me think of something about the, the state of Swift UI now versus back in June. I was wondering, I don't want to get ahead of things. Um, I, I'm sure we want to talk about 100 days of Swift UI, but I was just wondering, what you, what's your feeling? Maybe if you reminisce a little bit about what Swift UI was like when it first came out in those days where you're cranking out the, the, the book versus how things look today. Um, I know it really hasn't been that long, but it, I, they have been making um, strides in this. So I, what, what's your feeling about how Swift UI has, has progressed in these, these months so far? So in the early days, and again, this advantage of being in the Marriott uh, was that, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> was that um, it was really hard to tell which bits worked as designed um, because, you know, Apple, you know, DubDub is always a photo finish, right? They don't, they don't leave six months ahead of time, spare work to sort of sit around and, and sit on their hands and stare into space, right? These folks work extremely hard as long as they can to get as much as they can shipping for, you know, Monday. And I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if it was like Saturday, the day before Sunday, it must've been really, really tight this year because so much in iOS 13. Uh, and as a result, the, the Xcode build we get, iOS 13 beta one or Mac OS, um, Catalina beta one and so forth, you know, they, they freeze those early. They freeze them probably two or three weeks before DubDub. So the build they're using on stage isn't beta one and actually isn't really even beta two. It's usually sort of beta two and a half, maybe even sort of approaching three. That's the build they're using on stage. Uh, and this year particularly, that was really obvious because a number of talks were given where they're saying, and look at this feature and you'd go and try it. And it simply wasn't there. Uh, and in Swift UI, it was things like uh, the app published property wrapper or the forms API. Uh, they just weren't there. They just literally were not there. You couldn't build the code with those in place. And uh, they were showing them off. Uh, now, that's obviously problematic because you're sitting there going, well, they got it to work. How the hell, am I, just, am I being, being wrong here? Am I making sort of, some sort of foolish error? Um, and again, you talk to them and say, yeah, don't worry, that's coming in an upcoming seed. You know, we don't know quite when, but soonish. Uh, actually, I'd also say on that topic, this is why uh, so many people are adamant that you should file your radars early when you try and beta stuff out because if Apple is already on, they're working on sort of beta three-ish by the time we get beta one, right? Um, if you wait for you know, any further time, the earliest time you've got a chance of getting it fixed in is sort of beta four, beta five. And they only do sort of eight-ish betas in a, a cycle. So you can't really wait till beta five because then you're kind of out of time. I guess they're starting to lock down APIs and freeze things and so forth. So getting in super early matters. And, and also this is why very often you won't see your bugs getting fixed in beta two because beta two was frozen the week before you even saw beta one, you know, because they work ahead of themselves quite a long way. So things were changing very rapidly in early days and it, it was uh, tricky at times, but again, being able to say, Hey, um, am I just clueless here or is this a designed behavior was really, really helpful. So, uh, Paul, you said that sometimes you see stuff on the WWDC presentations, which are not actually available because they're using beta versions. Uh, and it reminded me about your talk uh, where you show all the secret Siri uh, 
Comanche. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone is listening that hasn't seen that, you should go uh, go look for it. It's a machine learning talk you can find on YouTube. Um, but I actually was wondering, were there any that you have seen come up in the Swift UI and the, the talks that uh, didn't make it to production that you wish had or um, did make it and you wish hadn't? No, no. So, so the Swift UI approach has uh, has learned a lot from where Swift. I kind of want to say went wrong, but it's not really fair saying it went wrong. But you know, they've looked at Swift very clearly and they've decided to take a different approach this time. You know, when Swift launched, dub dub, twenty fourteen or so, um, they were very clear. This thing is a new language from us. It's a bit to see without the the C and so forth. Um, and we're going to give you UI kit, sprite kit, core graphics, core image, map kit, da -da 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 -da. all the APIs out of the box worked with Swift. It wasn't great. There weren't like uh, lightweight generics in Objective-C back then. So the APIs weren't great in Swift, but it was all available to us. And as a result, they made dramatic changes in Swift 2 with guard and defer and similar things like that. Um, then, of course, Swift 3, the Swift apocalypse, Swift apocalypse, right? When everything changed and broke. Uh, and with Swift UI, they seem to have deliberately taken a different approach. Rather than try to do everything at once, they've instead tackled the small subset of functionality and made that the best they can. Really nailed that bit. And then, you know, dub dub 20, dub dub 21 and so forth. They're gonna roll out more features. So by taking this sort of more conservative approach, so by taking this more conservative approach, it does mean in the short term, it's very annoying. There's no UI collection view. There's no UI text view. There's no attributed strings. You can't even do things like a, a text field in an alert controller, for example. That's not in Swift UI. Um, but it means that the bits they have nailed are good and safe and strong and shipping. So no, they did not overshoot um, on the presentations. They kept it small and to the point. Um, but of course, then things landed in seed three and seed four and so forth. Well, cool. With all this learning that you've been doing about Swift UI, uh, I've been hearing about uh, a new program you have for people that want to learn it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you have offering? Uh, yeah, so earlier in the year, I ran a online daily course called the 100 days of Swift, where every day for 100 days, I post a short article introducing the day, giving some inspirational get-go, uh, giving folks a subset of Swift and UI kit or whatever to learn that day, and set them off. And as part of that, you would learn Swift with videos and chapters to read. You would uh, take regular reviews, like interactive tests online to test your knowledge. You would have coding challenges to add things to the apps you learn to make with the program. And every third uh, project, you would have a challenge, like a completely blank slate, make this thing based on what you've learned so far. And this took an enormous amount of work to produce. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. I made 23 hours of new videos um, for Swift and UIKit and so forth, uh, plus all the, the um, chapter reviews and challenges and so forth. There's a vast amount of work to make it happen. And I remember going to one of my favorite um, dub dub events on Saturday beforehand, I think it was, called Core Sushi. And it's a brilliant, it's a really, really, really fun event and great food too. Uh, and I was chatting to my Apple friends there who work on the various UI parts of Apple's platforms. And I said, listen, I've just finished the 100 days of Swift. This took me a lot of work. If you kill UIKit, I will hunt you down <laughs> and find you where you live. Um, and of course, they knew that in two days time, they were going to kind of move on from UIKit. Not kill it, but move on. Um, so <laughs> I, 
I don't know how, how terrified they were of my threats, but I want to deeply apologize for my jokes at the time. Um, but that, anyway, the, the, it was hugely popular. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people did that um, course from start to finish, which is really great to see. And even today, people are still posting their completion certificate from the final test, which is great. Uh, and I thought, well, it's been a few months now. Um, SwiftUI has settled down. I have been monkeying around with it since day one of SwiftUI, minute one exactly with SwiftUI. Uh, and I thought, well, now I've really got my head around how it works. And I've done a lot of videos about it already. I've done this huge book, SwiftUI by example, which is online for free. Now would be a great time to uh, do a new 100 days curriculum, the 100 days of SwiftUI. And the first 15 days are the same as the original Swift, uh, Swift days, because it's you know, one of the fundamentals of Swift. But then from day 16 onwards, it's the same process. You get a new project to make, you get challenges, you get quizzes about SwiftUI to follow, uh, and it's all online and all free of charge. So for folks who want to get into SwiftUI to really see what it can do, what it can build and so forth, it's a fantastic approach. It's, I, I aim for about, if you're an experienced developer, if you've got a few years of UI kit beneath your belt, you're looking at about 20, 25 minutes a day of you know, learning. If you're less experienced, it could be up to an hour or so. My goal is less than an hour a day of reading, writing, thinking about Swift and Swift UI to really master over 100 days. And if you, if you had started on the first day, or if you catch up to the days we have already, well, I think on day 29 so far, anyway, as you catch up to that, you finish, the last day is December 31st. So you, you start the new year with a sort of fresh perspective on Swift UI, ready to uh, go get them, as it were. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done, but we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. I think these formats where uh, people get to follow along in groups like this is really, really effective for learning. I see people posting all the time on Twitter and on Slack uh, talking about it, and they're so proud of themselves that they're, you know, oh, I'm on day 50 of this or day whatever of this. And to, to make it through with everybody, I think it's a, a really excellent way for people to learn. Um, and I was just wondering what's, what's your feedback from people have been so far on 100 Days of Swift UI? Are people really enjoying it? Uh, you know. I agree. It's a, it is a great way to learn because it's uh, cleanly compartmentalized learning. You know, you, you know, it's not some massive project. It's here is 20 to 25, maybe 35 minutes of work to master this technique in SwiftUI. And then we, 
you know, because it's, it's all carefully graduated. You know, I, I, if you follow the days as they're provided, I know by day 29, you have experience with forms and with buttons and with images and so forth. So when I give you a challenge, I know it's totally within the remit of what you can do. Like I know everything you should know by this point. If you don't know, you can go back and re relearn some days if you have to. But I know the bits you should know. So I can give you challenges that are properly, you know, they'll push you, but there's no new learning required. There's sort of logical thinking required. How do I rearrange my jigsaw pieces to make this thing happen? But there's no new learning required. So you always know it's within your reach, which is a lovely feeling, I think. And also, as you said, folks do love talking about it. And, it's the, and I, I work extremely hard for Hacking with Swift to ensure that everyone feels welcome, everyone feels encouraged, everyone feels they can take part no matter what level they're at. And I spend 20 or 30 minutes every day, if I have the time, to go to Twitter, find folks using the 100 Days of Swift hashtag, 100 Days of Swift UI hashtag, sorry, and talk to them. Say, oh, that's amazing, well done. You know, they post screenshots, look at that, it's really nice, you did a good job customizing that. Just giving them some more feedback and some more encouragement to build them up. And I see other folks doing the same thing too. And it's really, really nice. So yes, folks do seem to really enjoy it because it is targeted, it is contained, there is an end goal, they can you know, graduate with a, a certificate at the end of it. And uh, you know, I don't want to spoil it for you, but we're going to make some really nice stuff. We, we, we actually, we just finished a, a CreateML project, which is project four. We're on machine learning already, it's talking about all the new stuff in CreateML for macOS Catalina. So yeah, it's really exciting. No, it's very cool. And I've, I've gotten a lot, of, a lot of people I know have been going through it and they've really enjoyed it. So I, it's great to see people really getting into SwiftUI and I, I wish I would have started. Maybe I should catch up. But along with SwiftUI, you've been pretty busy doing some other things. And we thought we'd talk a little bit about iOS 13 and maybe some of the dark corners or some of the stuff that people aren't really uh, seeing. Uh, what can you say about that? So it's, it's interesting that if you think back to before DubDub, the sort of rumor mill was saying, oh yeah, Marzipan's coming and dark mode's gonna be huge for iOS. And then Catalyst happened and dark mode happened. And they're great things. They're really nice things. They've done a very good job on those. But it does feel a bit like SwiftUI has kind of come in and taken over the entire limelight um, from everybody else, which is a, a shame because there are so many other wonderful features that arrived in iOS 13, including things like uh, collection view composition, compositional layouts, which I know you've spoken about before. Um, SF symbols is just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, my personal favorite dark corner is Core Haptics. That's a really fantastically powerful uh, API, which gets really close to sort of um, HD rumble from Switch, if you've tried that, really sensitive rumble effects you can do. Um, there's amazing new machine learning stuff you can do to do on-device training. You can do uh, OCR, you can do image saliency. Um, there's CryptoKit, there's VisionKit, there's improved core image. I mean, it's really, really packed with stuff. I and mean, pr proper AAA features that would have by themselves been headline features of iOS if it wasn't for Swift UI. And then there were so many tiny features. Um, I say tiny, but you know, quality of life improvements. Um, the fact that you can now do dependency injection using storyboards. There's a new uh, relative date time formatter. There's a new list formatter. There's a UI font picker view controller. I mean, these are small things, but they add up to a very much more pleasing uh, experience for developers, I think. So it's a real mixed bag of hundreds of small changes, 15 to 20 massive headline changes, 
and then of course the behemoth that is Swift UI, kind of taking over all the limelight. So what new features do you think are going to be the most prevalent over the next year or two, other than you know, Swift UI? So the curious thing is that I think DubDub this year was so big that a lot of developers don't even realize all the things that have changed. Um, and that's sad because it, you know, things like the dependency injection for storyboards, if you use storyboards, you can now remove all those optional properties which you're setting immediately in you did load because you couldn't do it previously and now you can. And um, I do wonder whether it is Apple's big plan to get folks to upgrade to iOS 13 because you think about iOS 12 had a, had a massive upgrade spike because you had an extra year of iPhone uh, or iOS device compatibility added to the uh, track, which is great. But um, for iOS 13, there's so many things. Uh, I think developers are sort of clamoring to get access to them as fast as they can. But like SF Symbols by itself was a massive, massive, massive effort. 1,500 symbols across sort of seven or eight uh, weights is huge. Um, so I think developers will want to get hold of these things once they learn them all, um, which of course is challenging all by itself. I haven't checked today, but um, certainly as of like last week or so, one of the headline features, which is the uh, compositional collection view stuff, which is really astonishing. Steve Breen, uh, I believe the chap behind it, really knocked it out of the park on that. And uh, it was still down as no overview available on the, the Apple documentation. Um, and that's gonna hinder adoption. So uh, I, I can see a number of problems, one of which is there's so much stuff, where do you start? And the other one is, when you start, how do you learn it? Uh, and both of those are going to hold back developers in the short term until Apple sort of uh, get their act together and fix it all. But I hope we'll see things. And if I was to choose one thing that wasn't Swift UI, it would totally be the collection view compositional layout stuff because it's just it's a chef's kiss for the microphone. <laughs> I love that. So do you think that this, uh, this no documentation problem is going to improve? I mean, it seems like it's just been something that they've been wrestling with for so long. I mean, it's great for people like you who are providing uh, you know, content to, that, that helps educate us as developers. We appreciate it so much because uh, even watching a WWDC video, a lot of times I sit there and I go, okay, huh? And, you know, and, and not, it doesn't quite click. It doesn't click until I go to someone else, uh, you know, another site like Hacking with Swift or, or other resources and where someone has taken the time to distill it down to why this is important and how we can use it effectively in our apps. And it just seems like something that Apple has been wrestling with for a long time. So I didn't know, do you, do you, do you get a sense that this is gonna be improving? I think we can all agree that it has nosedived in the last, Hmm, want to say two years or so? I mean, when they moved over all the core image filter documentation to the archive, like we just give up on this stuff. That was, that was grim. That was really bad. Uh, and core image is hugely important on, on iOS and macOS and other platforms. Um, but it was just archived the whole thing. And that was a particularly, uh, particular nadir, I think, for Apple. Um, but of course, like I said the, the collection view stuff is no view available. In fact, I think uh, Matt Matt from NS Hipster recently launched NoOverviewAvailable.com. I think it is listing how bad it is, and it's very very bad. Um, you know, I, 
Apple, the world's richest company, right? Then they're, they're, they're not short of money. They're not doing bad documentation um, by accident. They can't be realistically. Something's happening, uh, and I don't quite know what it is yet. Uh, I'm certainly seeing. I, I feel like I'm seeing their direction change. Um, the everyone can code movement, which of course couldn't happen until uh, Swift launched, you know, became Swift Playgrounds, became the lovely little bite character walking around, um, became the hour of code things they have at their Apple stores, um, became these lovely WWDC talks about, you know, getting started with Xcode, getting started with Swift and so forth, and, and, uh, instruments, whatever, um, which are great. Uh, and when you look at the Swift UI documentation, the, the, the one they actually produced, the tutorial they produced, it's beautiful. It's really, really well done. They've built a whole platform there for doing documentation tutorials with little mini quizzes and so forth at the end. And it's lovely. It's not how I learn. I find it deeply frustrating to use because I, I sort of scroll down. And you haven't seen it. As you scroll down, you sort of code appears and you scroll a bit further and the code changes to a screenshot and scroll further, more code appears, another screenshot, more code, screenshot, the other day. I get to the bottom and go, well, oh, oh, this property here, what was that again? Command F, search, and nothing happens. And I'm, like, well, I'm sure it's here. But I have to kind of scroll up to change the picture back to the right screenshot of the code and then the code, I can command F it. So it annoys, it annoys my brain. It's not the way my brain wants to learn. Um, but that appears to be a new push from Apple to make uh, tutorials, which I don't think they've really done for a, a very long time. They normally do um, code samples very well when they want to. They do uh, API documentation very well, and they will occasionally do reference guides. Not so much recently, but it is a really good one for the touch bar for macOS if you do the AppKit work. But this is new, and I just I just get the feeling it's part of something bigger, because SwiftUI has now shipped on playgrounds. And it's shipped in like the least possible form that you can get away with. Like it's there, you can use it. There's no um, built-in playground uh, templates to use. There's no playground um, code to work with or walkthroughs or tutorials to work with. And I, I just get the feeling they're working on something much, much bigger and much, much newer, a sort of radical shift to chime in with the everyone can code push. And... You know, in some respects, it'll put me out of a job, which would suck. Um, but, um, you know, I, I expect to see more from them because the world's moved on. And when I look at the uh, app I made for iOS uh, this year called Unwrap, it's a swift learning app for uh, iPhone. Uh, it does all the modern things folk expect when learning something. You know, you get, um, you earn points and you unlock badges and it checks off what you've done and it's, it's rich and interactive and meaningful. And Apple, their traditional documentation is based around function signatures. You know, here's a function signature and, and here's what it does. And that's not really how folks want to learn anymore. So I hope, really hope, that the reason the documentation has gotten so bad is because they're all being carved off to some other project to make documentation better across the board with a new push towards these richer, more interactive more achievement-based, you know, alive, interactive tutorials, I hope. This is a massive, massive, massive guess, but that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, I, th I think that um, 
that you're on the right track there, Paul, because I had this conversation with a few people, uh, most recently with Leo, Leo Dion on one of his podcasts also, and I really feel like the what's been happening with um, the iPad to Mac OS apps and with Playgrounds expanding on, um, on iPad and also with uh, Swift UI is that Apple is opening up a way so that all of these uh, elementary students that they've been training on the iPad products um, when they leave school, maybe they can't afford a MacBook, but they're gonna be able to continue uh, because maybe they can afford an iPad. And not only that, but it's kind of being simplified to the point that um, other people will be able to do things without feeling like they like it's too hard or too complicated. For example, I can definitely see technical-minded designers doing um, initial kind of breakdowns of their work in Swift UI versus uh, in Storyboard or something like that. And I also um, think that iOS is becoming less and less programmerly. Um, when I know developers that are already developers and they ask me, you know, I want to learn mobile, should I, what do you think is easier, uh, Android or iOS? Um, in my experience working, I have worked on a team where we had developers come over from other platforms and the ones that came to iOS struggled a lot more than the ones that went to Android because coming to iOS, they had to learn the Apple ecosystem and they had to learn to think the way that Apple wants us to think. And they weren't able to just, you know, manipulate things the way that they're used to uh, in that more programmerly way. And I know that some people might disagree because of course you can still do programmerly stuff, but, um, but you don't have to. Uh, and I, I see that, that happening also. I don't think that it would put you out of a job though, because that's a very surface level thing to do the vast majority of, of enterprise work um, or big startups or even hardware. You need a lot more than that. But I think it is definitely gonna saturate the market with more, I don't wanna say simple, but like more front end based apps for, for sure. Honestly, I have no problem with that. Um, I, I, I applaud Apple's attempts to broaden our ecosystem to bring more folks in. And anything they can do helps everybody. Uh, and honestly, if I had a way, if Apple said, hey, Paul, just come in, come in to Cupertino for three months and help us somehow, I don't know what, just I would be over the moon. <laughs> just anything I can do to help them get better, I would totally jump at. I don't want to work there because they'd, they'd say, they'd say, you know, you've got to stop doing books. You've got to stop doing talks. And that would suck. I need to, be able to update my books. I need to, be able to do talks. But if I could help somehow to even slightly address the problem, I would totally jump at it. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. 
You never know that they might, Paul, because like recently, they, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe. because well, recently there's been a lot of um, Apple, uh, especially Swift people that have been doing podcasts and been posting on Twitter and even been doing talks. So if they're allowing select employees to go out into the, the real world, so to speak, maybe they might start allowing the real world to come into them. Maybe that, that's a big, a big deal breaker for me. I'd happily, I'd, honestly, if they said, oh yeah, come and work for us doing Swift, I'd join there as long as I can carry on doing my site and carry on doing talks. I just love doing those two things so much. Um, one thing I would say is that you raise the point of folks who learn not to have playgrounds having a hard time making the jump to Mac. And this is a problem Apple has to address. This is a serious problem and I've nagged them about it so many times and I'm hoping if I nag the right person or the right people enough times, they're going to cave in and just do it. The, the gap between iPad development and Mac development is a massive chasm. And that's wrong. They need to fix this in two ways. First, they've got to get Swift Playgrounds onto macOS. Like Xcode as well. Don't ditch Xcode. Keep Xcode, keep Xcode Playgrounds, da, da, da. but take Swift Playgrounds itself and make that available on macOS as a Mac App Store download with the same tutorials, same functionality, the same extra functionality that actually Xcode doesn't even have in its Playgrounds. Really cool Playground books, for example. Get that on macOS. So there's a smoother transition from that to Xcode. So they can go iOS playgrounds, Mac playgrounds, Mac Xcode. It fills that gap nicely. The second thing I believe they really have to do, and this is a longer term thing because I realize this is not easy for them to do, is let folks who want to build apps on iPad build apps on iPad. I mean, why can't you build your code on iPad, press a button, and put it on App Store Connect? There's, there's obviously, there's an, honestly, there's, there's no reason why that shouldn't be the case because you can already run all the code you'd like. You can build your view controllers. You can make transitions. You can use SwiftUI. You can use Combine, yada, yada, yada. It's all there inside Swift Playgrounds. Why can you not then ship code to the App Store? And that would bring the balance much, much closer. You could do your entire job on an iPad if you wanted to, but also bridge that gap to the Mac much, much better. So I keep on, keep on nagging them. If you're listening, Apple folks, I'm going to nag you again right now. Come on. Please, please, please bring Swift Playgrounds to the Mac. Make it happen. I know you can do it. So you mentioned a little bit about Unwrap, and I, I was curious about what you do when you're not doing the site, when you're not doing training materials, when you're not uh, talking. Um, so what do you do when, when, you're not, when you're actually writing code, learning this stuff, and not uh, working on your site? Uh, well, I have two kids, so mostly looking after the kids. Um, so actually today I was teaching my eldest one some Swift. Um, she's getting there slowly. She finally nailed optionals today, which is a good thing. Um, yesterday, it was Nerf guns with my six-year-old and uh, making pizza. Um, but yeah, mostly looking after my kids, um, but, you know, which is fair enough. I work from home. I haven't got a real job, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> I rely entirely on, on uh, people supporting my work by buying books and, and so forth. I haven't got a real actual job. I just enjoy noodling with Swift all day and writing about it. Well, we appreciate that. And what is the Unwrap app that you're working on? It's free. It's free on the App Store. Uh, it's, a, it's an open source app I built. It's all on GitHub if you want to look at the code, uh, which gives you, I think, 99, 99 exactly, in fact, videos and chapters teaching the fundamentals of Swift. Each one has a test at the end on your iPhone. You can walk through and try, try the tests out. Uh, there is a, a practice mode, so you get randomized tests, you get rearranged lines, you get type to code, you get whatever tests in there. There's daily challenges, there's a news feed, there's badges to unlock and points to earn and ranks to go through and so forth. There's a massive Swift glossary in there. Uh, and the whole thing, I think, is like 85 megabytes like, offline on your phone, including all the videos. 
It's really, really small um, given the outcome that you get. Uh, it's all free. There's no in-app purchases. It's free on the App Store. It's open source on GitHub. I encourage folks to you know, go and contribute, make changes, see how I write large projects uh, and get involved. Um, and you know, folks like it because for what, that time you're like uh, on, on, the, on the train or waiting at a bus stop, you've got five minutes spare, pull out your phone, do a quick challenge or write some code real fast and see what comes out. Uh, it's a nice way of learning Swift on the move, I think. The, uh, the thing I appreciate about uh, Unwrap, well, I mean, the, the fact that you mentioned that it was uh, open source is definitely one of the, one of the aspects. Um, but also it just, it makes um, brushing up on Swift fun. And that's, that was one of the things that struck me about it, which was, wow, this is a really great way to, to learn Swift. Um, and, you know, with the badges and everything, I think it's really great. And it, it helps you to, to just keep on moving forward. Um, so I really appreciate you doing that and then, and open sourcing it as well. And, uh, it's, it, you know, it makes me think sort of like how you approached hundred days of Swift and Swift UI too, where, uh, you're, you're motivated to keep going by, um, posting somewhere what your status is in, in those, uh, those programs. So I, I think you've hit on something that's really effective for us to, to learn and brush up on our skills. Uh, or to learn if we if we're just starting out, uh, and that that was one of the things that I was thinking about too uh, as we were discussing this, which is that you know even if we've been developers for a long time, it's totally okay to go and download something like Unwrap and and go into Hundred Days of Swift UI, and uh, in fact, it's a great way for us to to expand our um, our, our skills, and I think that's kind of necessary. Sometimes we might feel, oh well, I'm I'm above that, but uh, I, I I don't feel that way. I feel like it's uh, it's been a really great way to kind of fill in some of the gaps maybe that I've missed along the way. Yeah. So interestingly, um, because the first fifteen days of the hundred days is effectively the unwrapped content, it's the same material, the sort of Swift fundamentals. Folks who've been doing the Swift UI course have been doing the fundamentals as well, and they're coming to Swift UI fresh. You know, they've been new at Git for a long time, but Swift UI is new to them because it's new to everybody. So they're going through this 100 days thing and they're going through the Swift fundamentals. And honestly, so many folks get in touch and say, wow, I've been doing Swift since day one. I didn't realize you could put underscores and in integers, like one underscore zero, 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 underscore zero, zero, zero to do one million to make them easier to read. Or I didn't realize you could do multi-line strings with three double quotes. And that's been there you know, since Swift 4. Um, so there's always new stuff to learn. And it's obviously... I'm cheating slightly. I, I, my entire job is noodling with Swift. I'm already looking at what's new in Swift 5.2, for example. There's some great stuff in Swift 5.2. Uh, and uh, I, I obviously think about these kind of things all the time. Folks who are doing, you know, Jira backlog most of the time or thinking about one-to-ones or thinking about stand-ups or thinking about the uh, Git problem review they're looking at right now haven't got time to think, oh, how do you do uh, multi-line strings? They haven't got the time to do that kind of thing I'm doing. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that respect, I think. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I think what Evan said, even if you're a professional programmer been doing it for years, you're likely dealing with one aspect that's important to your job or, you know, for me, a client. And I switch clients pretty frequently, but I still heads down on one thing for three or four months at a time. So all the other stuff, like, I don't see. So it's, it's pretty common and don't feel like you have, if you're using training materials, like you're not a real programmer or anything like that. Um, no one, there's too much going on in iOS for anyone to ha- know all of it at this point. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so just 
last week, I want to say. Um, someone came to me um, at Pragma conference in Italy and said, Paul, how do you learn what you learn and then to teach us? You know, how do you get this knowledge? And I said, well, look, I'm, I'm here at Pragma, this conference. I, I go to 12 to 15 to 17 sometimes last year, events a year, and I go to as many talks as I can. I speak to as many people as I can. I say, show me your code. Show what you think is cool right now. And I'm getting ideas from them all the time. Uh, now, some folks get to go to three or four events a year. I go to 15 events a year. I see five times the average number of uh, talks most people do. I speak to way more people. People just come and show me their stuff all the time, which is, which is great. So I'm getting fresh ideas a lot. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no magic to it. We think about... Um, you know, where you get ideas from, <laughs> you know, I'm sure my brain is doing something along the way. Um, but uh, the, the, you know, there's a Steve Jobs quote that creativity is just connecting things. You know, people feel guilty because um, they, they, they didn't really create anything. They just saw it. They just they were able to connect experiences they had to synthesize new things. And that's kind of where my brain works. I'm seeing people talking all the time about whatever's cutting edge and new and swift and UI kit and machine learning literally every month, often twice or three times a month speaking to folks in the hallway track and more, getting emails all the time and tweets all the time and so forth. And I'm connecting the dots and getting ideas from that. So I am able to sort of keep abreast of many, many things at the same time because I haven't got to do all the rest of the things that most developers do have to do. Like I said, I haven't got to think about a daily stand-up or a Jira backlog or a one-to-one -one meeting with my team, whatever it is. I just focus on, hey, what's cool in Swift today? And think about it and try it and write some code and see what I like and then throw it away and then write some more code and then throw that away and then write some more code and that one works. And I ship that all the time. I, I really like my job. Awesome. We're getting a little bit low on time. Anything else you want to cover before we get to the picks? Um, let me see. We're talking about SwiftUI, Port iOS 13. I've ranted about Swift Playgrounds and Mac. All the, all the key points, really. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to the picks. Abby, what do you have for us? Uh, actually, I have a, another test flight, another app that's in test flight. Um, this one is by uh, my friend Aaron Pierce. He's a developer in New Zealand, and he made an um, app called uh, SF Viewer. And it's a tool for viewing the SF symbols. I, I brought it up because I was actually going to do a different pick, but Paul, you mentioned uh, the SF symbols being such a great addition. And this is a tool for viewing the SF symbols on iOS. Uh, it lets you export them to whatever format you need for development or design. Very cool. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone that wants to sign up. There's public beta. Okay, very cool. Evan, what do you have for us? Yeah, I have sort of a, I guess, a compound pick. Uh, the first part is the film that is uh, available on Vimeo called Love Notes to Newton. And uh, it's this uh, sort of documentary um, independently produced uh, that, that deals with the Apple Newton. Uh, which is a product that I had for a while. And I actually, I, I love my Newton. Um, I'm sad that I got rid of it. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a great little documentary. And I'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes. Um, the cool thing about it too, is that they mention a project called Einstein, uh, which is actually an iOS project. It's open source. It's on GitHub. I'll put the link also uh, in the show notes too. Um, but you can it, it allows you to uh, run the Newton OS 
on iOS and uh, which is just kind of a fun kind of trip down to memory lane, you know, uh, being able to see it's, you know, the functionality of it. I don't know, but it's, it, it for me, it was kind of uh, just kind of nostalgic to, uh, to watch the film and then try this out. Uh, the, uh, apparently the, I think the current build that they have there, it isn't, it doesn't actually uh, work properly. You have to kind of go back to an earlier, uh, an earlier version. But once you once you figure that out, uh, it actually works great. I, it was kind of fun to load it up on an iPhone and um, and tap on it a little bit. So, uh, yeah, like I said, it was just a little bit nostalgic for me. And uh, yeah, so that's my that's my pick. Very cool, Paul. Do you have a pick for us? Uh, yeah, I have a couple of picks. Um, so right now I'm doing a, a, a thing, as a kind time recording that is, um, called Swift Oberfest, where every day I'm posting an article about Swift UI, and then an article about not Swift UI, and then my 100 Swift UI stuff as well. So it's sort of three triple whammy every day. And it's basically getting rid of content that I've written previously and haven't had a chance to use. Uh, and one of the things I've written about that I, I really want more folks to know about desperately is the word embeddings in iOS 13. This is one of the many, many lovely small features I've introduced in iOS 13 that's actually pretty groundbreaking what it does. Uh, and it's wonderful in so many ways. And it's part of the natural language framework. And they've effectively analyzed all the words in English, uh, given it all into their massive ML trainer, and produced word vectors and word distances for every word that you know about. Um, and it works for a handful of languages, but obviously I've tested English only. Uh, and what it lets you do is you can say now, uh, give me the word embedding for English or French or uh, Dutch or Chinese languages are in there. And then say, uh, here's a word like cat or rain or table. Give me similar words to that word. And it will come back saying, well, you asked for rain. I'm going to give you back downpour and rainstorm and torrential and flooding and flood and monsoon and drenching, whatever. Loads of words like the words you asked for. And Apple actually uses in their own apps. So if you're in the Photos app and you search for, uh, you know, Kitty in Photos, it will say something like, Kitty, did you mean cat? Uh, to help you find the word to search for. So it's really, really good for doing fuzzy searches around a topic. If you've tagged something as uh, sombrero and they search for hat, it's not an exact match, but Sombrero is close to hat, so it'd find hat. Um, so I've actually written about that as part of Swift Overfest. You can probably link that in your show notes. But have a check it out. It's a lovely, invisible little feature you can use very, very easily. Uh, my second um, pick I'd like to pull out is an app that um, uh, uh, someone who reads my blog has just shipped. It's a very, very first app. And for someone's first app, it's really beautiful. It's done a really good job. Uh, it's called Spendo. And it tracks your spending for a given period of time. You say what your app budget is and Apple Card style. You say, hey, I've spent this much on health, this much on entertainment, this much on beauty or leisure, whatever you want. Uh, it's by Spendo by Tom Pfeiffer, I believe it's pronounced. Um, and it's lovely. And it's this very, very first app. I'm blown away by the quality of this uh, young person's app. It's really, really nice. So go and check it out. It's free on the App Store. Well, very cool. Yeah, for sure. Put those links in the show notes so our listeners can download them as they wished. So... Thanks, Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. I think we learned a lot, and we're all fans of your work, as are many people in the industry. So keep it up, and we hope people keep buying books, and so you can keep doing it. Yeah, until I say Apple take over. Now <laughs> I'll, I'll be I'll be Doc's Sherlock eventually. I reckon. We'll see. No, I don't think you ever will be. <laughs> Not this yeah, race. We'll see. Yeah, seriously doubt it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Paul. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Awesome. Thank you, Paul. Everyone else, we'll see you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.